Hello and welcome. The Portavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World welcomes you to another episode of our podcast, Legacies of Ancient Persia. Join us as we further explore the many legacies of ancient Persia and its relevance to global patrimony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Legacies of Ancient Persia. This week, our guest is Trevor Cully, the creator and host of the popular History of Persia podcast. In this episode, we discuss why he started a podcast on Persian history, what the writing process is like for a scripted history podcast, the reception of his show from diasporic Persian communities, and what parts of Persian history he'd like to see someone else take on going forward. We hope you enjoy this episode. And if you like what you hear, please give our show a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. Thanks for joining me, Trevor. I want to just start out by asking, when did your interest in ancient Persia begin? Right. So I really started discovering Persian history my very first class in my very first year of college. It was a comparative religions course focusing on the origins of different world religions. And one of the religious groups we covered were Zoroastrians. And being a very contrarian 18-year-old, I wanted to write my term paper that semester on something I knew nobody else in the class was going to do. So I picked that one and grabbed a copy of Mary Boyce's History of Zoroastrianism from the school library. But it was volume two because they didn't have volume one. And it was basically a history of the Achaemenid Empire with like some Zoroastrian progression alongside each step. And I found that political history even more interesting than the religious history that I was writing about and kind of went down the rabbit hole from there. That's really cool. And I mean, before this class, before all this, had you had any sort of prior interest in, and I'm not going to limit it to Persian history or mythology or whatever, but just any sort of interest in ancient, the ancient world, ancient studies before this, or was it like a side passion? Oh, yeah, it was never up to that point, what I had thought I was going to make a focus on academically, partly because at the time I was at a university that didn't really offer that as a focus. There was no classics department. It was very modern poli-sci oriented school. So I had, but I had always been interested in antiquity. I requested as a 10th birthday present to go to the touring King Tut exhibit at the time. So I've always had an interest in the ancient world, but something about the combination of where I was at the time and what I was thinking about and what I was learning about through studying Zoroastrianism all kind of came together at the right moment, I think. And I became very interested in that. This is a very niche field and a very niche topic. So when you decided to pursue it. People may have heard your name or heard the name of your show, History of Persia, as a podcast that 
does a really great job of teaching us about Persian history. But as someone who didn't continue on and like get a PhD, how close were you to going on and getting your PhD and then maybe doing a show on ancient on ancient Persia? Or would you have done the show even if you knew you never wanted to go on and get a PhD? So that's kind of impossible to say because both concepts started coming around at the same time. I was writing my applications for grad school and the initial episodes of the podcast at the same time. So they were kind of simultaneous for me, knowing that, you know, there was this, to me, obvious hole in the history podcast ecosystem that I had been really enjoying for several years. And I was enjoying it and wanted to fill that hole because I was interested in ancient Persia. And the only thing you can really do with that as far as anybody is really concerned is pursue it academically. So I was applying to graduate programs at the time. Uh, and actually, I think a week or two after I posted the first episodes, I was visiting UCLA to tour the Iranian Studies Department. So there was always a kind of overlap with that. Okay, so very chicken and egg question, I guess. Right. Okay. Now, as an outside observer, why a podcast? Was it always podcasting? Because, I mean, there's so many different types of mediums that you could go. So why specifically podcasting? Partly because it was a medium that I had been taking in a lot. At that time, I was commuting at least an hour and a half five or six days a week. So they were a thing that I could put on in the car and they're not distracting, they're legal while you're driving, all of that sort of thing. And I was listening to a ton of podcasts at the time and discovering that there was a history of Rome, which is kind of the foundational piece of that sort of narrative, serialized history genre, but a history of China and a history of Egypt and Around the time I was starting, there was a uh, history of New Zealand was getting started and history of Georgia started not long after me. Uh, there was all sorts of different regional history podcasts that I was discovering, but there wasn't one for the subject I was most interested in. And eventually I said, fine, I'll do it myself. And at the time I was thinking, oh, this will be, you know, a good way to do a lot of research on my own that relates to academics but isn't directly tied into anything that i have to work on academically and it has now continued well beyond me actually being involved directly in academia but as for why not anything else podcasting has a really low barrier to entry if you have a microphone and an internet connection you can have a podcast it doesn't necessarily mean that those are the only requirements to make it sound any good but those are the only things you need to make it happen. Whereas, like, I don't know anything about video editing, so I'm kind of out of luck on breaking into YouTube, even if that wasn't such a high bar for success already. And you know, anybody who knows anything about academic publishing will tell you that books aren't really the great, the best way to get information out to the general public anyway. Like, so this was a something I was interested in and something I was already enjoying and was really easy to start. 
Yeah, I'm going to say that it. I'd imagine that when you're young and looking at grad programs and kind of in that early academic journey, that it would be not too hard to become aware of or have access to or use some of these, you know, sources, places like JSTOR or whatever we can think of that students have access to to get your hands on information. As you got further away from that, and clearly outside of academia, did it become harder to access materials, or has that not changed? It is slightly harder for specific materials. I was a bit fortunate in that JSTOR switched to its 100 free articles a month during the pandemic right as I was leaving academia, so there was never really a gap in my ability to access it, because I can't read 100 articles and 75 chapters every single month i'll go insane uh and there's not usually a hundred articles on whatever topic i'm writing about in that month for the podcast anyway you know either i have to scale it down for the big famous events like alexander and xerxes or three people have ever written about a very specific two-year revolt in southern anatolia that i'm probably the only person most of my listeners will ever hear about it from so i'm not at a lack for resources most of the time or i'm not at a lack for access to the resources most of the time occasionally there's a specific de Gruyter or brill article that i can't access because i don't have institutional access to that anymore but there's a couple of those that i never had access to so that's not that big a change For sure. So it seems like then it's not as hard as one would imagine it to be since this podcast and the one I normally do, I don't, it's not narrative focused. So I I don't have that issue. But sometimes I think, you know, oh, this might be quite a bit harder depending on what you want to do. But it's kind of gratifying actually to hear that if you are someone with a passion for a specific ancient culture, it's not going to be horrible. Like there's, you're not going to not have any sources. So so it is wonderful to to know this as well. But I would put you on the scale of like people who are not in academia proper on the scale of really really engaged with material and like up on things with the ancient world and people who are not. Do you still try to seek out or find any kind of Zoom lectures or other things that you can attend to learn more when you, you know, maybe don't have time to read that book or that article or just for your own enjoyment? I do, especially for forthcoming things where someone is lecturing on a topic that's yet to be published. I try to, preferably if they're recorded because that's just easier to manage, but I try to tune into lectures like that because... I'm on such a rapid production schedule, and the downside to a podcast is that once the information is out there, the majority of people who are going to listen to it in the near future have already heard it. So if you discover that you need a correction, you either have to shoehorn it in somewhere further down the line or go back and edit it where not everybody is going to discover the correction. So I try to keep up with current publication and, you know, lectures on forthcoming publications specifically to try and stay abreast of like, if there's a new inscription that's being published or, you know, a 
new set of papyri that was discovered that changes something. I want to be aware of that so that my episodes are as up to date as they can be because I know that most people aren't going to go back and find a correction, especially as I move out of the Achaemenid period. I'm starting the series on Alexander the Great now. I want to make sure I have all of the sort of ducks in a row because I know a lot of my listeners are never going to go back and hear any updates to those, even if I make them. That makes sense. And so turning to your show, in fact, for the uninitiated who have never heard of it before, when did you start and how far do you intend to take your show? Does it have an ending point? Right. So I started it in terms of my myself recording and writing things at the end of 2018, published at the beginning of 2019. And the tagline for the show that I use is 700 BC to 700 CE. So I started with kind of the aftermath of the Bronze Age collapse and rushed through that and the expansion of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, because that provides a really good framework for like a geographical tour of the general Southwestern Asia region and tease up a lot of the important events that lay the groundwork for Persian expansion later on. And in terms of an endpoint, so officially I have that as roughly 700 CE. And as I have loosely mapped it out, I'll probably take it up to around the mid ninth century, just because I have this idea of an epilogue covering some of the little breakaway kingdoms around the Caspian Sea that weren't immediately absorbed into the early caliphates and the little flare-ups of Zoroastrian and Zoroastrian-esque rebellions during those first couple centuries after Islam. But I don't have any intention at this time of taking history of Persia forward into the Islamic medieval period, because that's a very different realm of events and politics and concerns, really. It's fair. Everyone's got to stop somewhere. And so from the history that you are covering... It's all interesting, but do you have a particular favorite, either person or couple of years within there that you particularly enjoy covering? Yes. I. So my reason for getting into this at all was always the Achaemenids, which does make it a little weird that I'm looking at five to eight more years minimum of doing this podcast that I really do want to do, but on topics that I am less personally invested in. But of that whole span, I've really come to love and appreciate the time frame of Darius II, uh, who I feel is one of the under-discussed and under-appreciated Persian kings in all of history, who just has kind of this point in time where he's the first king to preside over a lot of political turmoil. There had been rebellions and assassinations before, but this is the first time you start seeing independent satraps rebelling, not let people trying to restore old kingdoms or challenge him for the throne. Just random governors saying, well, if I fight you, I can get either secession or better conditions. And it's the beginning of a lot of this political drama and his wife, Parasadis, is either horribly defamed if you want to take the defensive approach against the Greek sources or an incredible monster if you just want to follow them. And 
there's so much going on that I just don't think it's talked about outside of like very specific anecdotes that really only represent a couple sentences of ancient literature. Hey, I would love to learn more about that entire period and about Darius, the second one. So while you're doing research and while you're covering everything, at any point, did you feel like you would ever have trouble sort of keeping who was who together in an ordered manner? Because a lot of these ancient Persian kings share the same name. Now, yes, they're differently numbered, but a lot share the same name. So did you ever have any trouble with that? Or did you, even if you didn't, did you have to account for helping other people along who might not find it as easy to sort of keep track in their in their heads? So I, until pretty recently, haven't had a ton of trouble with it. The Achaemenid Kings at least did us the favor of mostly not having the same name multiple times in a row until the very end. There's a couple of times where there's three or four different people with a Mithra prefix in their name or three or four people named Histaspes or Vishtaspa all running around at the same time. But those are usually like tertiary level figures in the narrative. So they don't, if you can't keep track of them, it's not a huge deal for the audience. Getting towards the end, I have had to really make sure to emphasize which regnal number I'm using because even going straight from Artaxerxes II to Artaxerxes III, there's a pretty solid cutoff there and there's not a huge amount of overlap in their events where you can get too confused over who's who. And if it's a problem, you can always call Artaxerxes III by his birth name, Ocus, and it's not that confusing. But then you get into Artaxerxes IV, whose birth name is Arces, which doesn't really help people if they're already losing track of names. And there's a lot of overlap in what people were doing or which king might have presided over which specific events. And in terms of Persian kings, you get Darius III after that. But when you get Darius III, you also get Alexander and Amentus and Atalus. And the once the Macedonians get involved, it's just this deluge of people with the same names, uh, which will get a little bit easier as you know, different families break off into different kingdoms, and I can just kind of sequester everybody named Cleopatra in one place and everybody named Antiochus in another place. But during this initial like Macedonian onslaught period, it's a, a ton of very similar or identical names, including occasionally I recorded an episode just a couple days ago with two Alexanders directly involved. And of course, one is Alexander the Great, but I have to keep track of that without getting too wordy. So it's always King Alexander this and Alexander some other title did that. And that part gets a lot more complicated. But the Achaemenids themselves are actually mostly straightforward on the names. As long as you remember you're in a specific period. You know, don't assume that just because somebody's name is Arsimis that it's somebody who died 150 years before the other things we're talking about. That doesn't make a ton of sense, even though I occasionally run into pop history articles that just blanket label anybody as the most famous example of the name. The internet is a wild place. Yeah. Blanketly just saying this is someone who is interesting or this person did something amazing and then having to make sure, you know, it's the right person because unfortunately, right, not everyone on the internet is going to check to make sure it's the right one 
and to their credit, the names do get confusing if you're not doing everything in a strict order, or if you're writing from memory. I did encounter in one major academic publication that's you know, very crucial to the field and everything that they accidentally listed one of Darius the Great's sons, not by the name given in any of the Greek sources, but by the name used in a French play, which then infiltrated my podcast. And I had to go back and correct that later on because I had just copied the family tree over from the book I was reading. <laughs> okay. It's funny how that happens. I mean, obviously academics aren't like infallible, but it, it, it's funny that it somehow... Uh, a French play name made it in. You know, you were writing an article about historical reception at the time that name was kicking around. It happens. I once wrote a whole paper about, I want to say Hellenica, but I used Persica. Every I, Everything about it was correct. I just used the wrong title of the book every time I wrote it down in the paper that I was writing in college. So if you're thinking about two things at once, you can get them crosswired pretty easily. Yeah, it's like when you say, "Oh, I can't write as I'm listening to music with lyrics because at some point, right? Do you encounter this where if you're if you're doing something and then you're you'll be writing and then you'll like accidentally write or type the lyrics that you're listening to instead of what you're supposed to be doing and then you realize it and you're like, "Oh no, I just wasted all that time." Yeah, absolutely. That or I'll often have multiple displays open for different materials and I'll glance over at one screen and then just copy what that was because I was just writing train of thought and I have to go back and clear several sentences that were just directly copied from another page. I want to get a little to your writing process for those who, who don't know how a scripted show like yours works. When you're scripting your episodes, do you try to write kind of more academic style and then just read it in a translatable way or is the writing process more like writing a trade book like popular writing sort of almost like I don't know tv writing or, or something that that you the the focus is different it's not so much on the academic tone but sort of on the the flow what is the writing process like so it's not an academic style of writing or more actually it's it's not an academic publication style of writing because one of the things that successful podcasts tend to do very well, and the reason that a lot of successful podcasts are co-hosted or comedy-based, is feeling like the audience is engaged in a conversation. So one of the things I really had trouble with when I was initially drafting the early scripts was writing in a way that sounded like a podcast to me. And I realized that's because I was trying to write an explanation. I was trying like you would for a paper or for a publication or even for a trade book. You are telling somebody in writing, but I'm not ultimately telling anybody anything in writing when I do this because I'm reading it aloud. It's purely an audio medium. So I stopped, went back to the drawing board and thought about it for a minute and when I was coming up with the idea for the podcast, I had sat in the car as I was driving home and, you know, run through what I would want the History of Persia podcast to sound like in my head. And I realized, well, that's just what I should be writing down. So I just write down how I would tell it to somebody in a conversation. 
and then go back and edit to clean it up and things like that. But primarily just transposing how I would orally explain it to somebody off the cuff is a lot more engaging to a audio medium than if I were doing like an audio book. Yeah, that makes sense. And for people who might, you know, listen to an episode and say, oh, this is really cool. I'm learning a lot. Oh, but I'd like to read more in as someone who doesn't script anything, which sometimes I'm like, oh, that would be fun to try. But obviously I've now podcasted for three years without any scripting of anything. And so I I would find switching to be incredibly difficult. And I, I would probably find the same issue, which is I don't know what to do or how to write it because it is different than the writing I'm used to. So for you, if when you encounter maybe the thought that someone would want to go deeper than your episode, do you provide a transcript and like, does the transcript sort of have sources kind of embedded in them? Or do you provide show notes that are more detailed where you say, okay, this is all the things that you can go and find that will elaborate on the things that I've talked about? Or will you actually write up a completely separate thing for people? So I have a selected bibliography on my website that is primarily what I would direct people to for diving further in. And one of the things... I reckoned with very early on in the podcasting process was that nobody is ever going to look for an additional resource that I tell them to. I don't know why, but people are significantly more likely to just Google it than they are to ever go to any of the links I tell them are in the show notes or on my website or anything. They're just going to open up Google and type in the thing they're looking for. So one of the things I've made a point to do is in my own personal editorial style guide, always use names for things that are either very similar to or directly the pronunciation that will get you to a Wikipedia article. Because for the most part, they are either reliable or reliable enough to direct somebody to Encyclopedia Aeronica, which is very difficult to search and come up with if you don't know the terms you're already looking for. But in general, I don't put a ton of resources directly into anything provided with the specific episode, partly because when I started, transcripts weren't feasible because I was doing a lot of my own pronunciation guidelines as I got used to some of the you know different spellings that I wasn't all that familiar with yet which led people to always be very impressed. They were, you know, how could you pronounce some Babylonian name correctly? Well, it's because I spell it very phonetically in a way that nobody would ever write it down. But now I am practiced enough that I read them off the cuff and surprise people sometimes. But at that point, by the time I stopped doing that, it just seemed like such a monumental task to go back and redo it all to provide proper transcripts with citations that it scared me away from doing it. And of course, that was at like episode 40. And now I'm at episode 105. And that doesn't make it less intimidating of a process. But there is the selected bibliography, which I do need to update, but it is there and does include all of the major primary sources still that I've used. Well, it's helpful to know that you have this resource. So for people who would like to go learn more, they can. But I'm wondering, and and maybe unique to some issues maybe maybe it's not but 
Yeah, I mean, people are definitely more probably likely to just Google something than be directed to a resource. But I'm wondering, do you think that has something to do with the people who make up your audience? Do do you have a good sense of who your audience is? Is it just people who are, you know, history curious, people who just like learning about history? Is it academics in the field? Do you have a sense of who it might be? So the general sense I get is it's, you know, history curious or, you know, history enthusiastic lay people, basically, um, for the most part. That is at least the sense I get from who follows my accounts on social media, who I get emails from, things like that. I know there are academics who listen. It's just that there's just a much larger number of non-academic people in the world to listen. So unless it's specifically geared towards academia, it's always going to appeal to the that broader audience. Um, and weirdly, a significant number of British preparatory schools have me listed as a resource. So apparently I exist to some degree in that circuit of information that I don't quite understand how I got there, but I have found that a lot of traffic to my website is directed from the teaching resources pages from several British school programs. What an interesting place to be listed. I mean, that's awesome. I I guess young British people will learn about ancient Persia. Right. I, you know, I'm very happy to see it. I got listed uh, as a resource for uh, secondary schools by University College London this past year. So I'm I'm very grateful to be able to provide that resource. I just don't quite know how I entered that space because I certainly never made a direct appeal. <laughs> That's wild. So in the U.S., we have a pretty large diasporic community of Iranian-Americans And when you were trying to build your show or sort of imagining where it would go and what you would do, was it an organic build like most podcasters honestly have to do, which is just sort of make the thing you love and hope that people out there love it. But did you ever have an idea that, oh, maybe I want to try to appeal to that community? This is their heritage. Did you have like a goal in mind? You know, oh, I would like to appeal more to academics or to non-academics or was it literally an organic i'll just make it and see who who listens it was mostly i'll make it and see who listens yeah in terms of appealing to academia at the time i was trying to appeal to academia in a very different way of please let me into your program uh so i didn't feel like i had any place to really be like telling things to established academics and i never intentionally wanted to target the diaspora community I assumed from the start that I would get some attention there just by the nature of what people would search for and what people would see recommended to them and stuff like that. But I always wanted to treat that with caution because as, you know, a very white man with a very Anglo name, I didn't, you know, it's not my place to tell people what is true and not true and correct and not correct about how they perceive their heritage beyond you know refuting very basic incorrect facts about you know small pieces of information that are misused in some way but the outpouring of support i've had from that community has been incredibly gratifying of people you know, of 
Iranian people or, you know, second or third generation immigrants saying, this is really helping me reconnect with, you know, my cultural history. And, you know, this is how I'm learning about this part of our history for the first time. And that's incredibly gratifying and a little overwhelming at times because that's, you know, a type of responsibility that I hadn't really anticipated when I just kind of launched this from a corner of my living room. Since then, I have specifically noticed that that community does seem to be the largest single block of listeners for me. There is a very, you know, I can see like the heat map of where I get downloads and plays from. And obviously, California just has so many people, but that NLA just has so many people. But if you what I, you know, click through the different layers of it, you, I, you do find there's just that little spot in West Hollywood where it's like, oh, well, I know who lives. I know who's listening here and I know why. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's great. I don't you love analytics? It it's it lets you like creep on where are people listening from and then you feel a bit creepy for 2 seconds and then you're like, "No, this is this is good." Yeah. I will put the call out again just in case any the person happens to listen to this. Whoever listened to my show in Antarctica, I really want to know. I just want to know the circumstances. <laughs> it happened one time and I've been curious ever since. Yeah, I'm like, no one lives, no one really lives down there, right? It's just... No, it's just research stations. <laughs> so maybe someone got bored one day and was like, let's just listen to this. <laughs> or we can go for the slightly more humorous, a penguin told them to listen. Yes. They heard from their cousins. Now, I assume it was like somebody on a ship, because I know I have a couple of regular listeners who are on, like, cargo ships. Uh, so I like it was probably something like that, but I'm just so interested in knowing the backstory of that one time it was played technically in Antarctica somehow. This is a great mystery, and I would like to know as well. And if I can find out for you, I will let you know. I don't think I will, but I will try. <laughs> this is a, another great mystery. But since you have sort of inadvertently stumbled into this responsibility with the Iranian American community now as, as someone who is podcasting their history, have you had any thoughts or ideas about maybe one day doing something interactive with the community, like, you know, a live podcast recording, something, something, I mean, I don't know how, you know, or like a live Q and a or, or something, you know, unless, unless that's a kind of level of notoriety that you are just like, I am not really wanting to do, but I mean, it, I just feel like it offers you a unique opportunity because there is a large community here and this is not something that people podcast about until we're blue in the face. Right. There are sort of two obstacles to that. The first one being that I live in St. Louis. So doing anything in Southern California takes a lot of planning and effort on my part. I also would be happy to do it. I'm just not incredibly comfortable with doing it live in person. I've done live events online before. It just doesn't make for great podcasting if that makes sense just the the live environment isn't a great recording one and that that is also partly just my personal preference i don't particularly like live albums either so i i'm happy to do in-person events i'm uh going to an in-person podcasting conference next week i just i don't think i would record 
truly live and in person just because it's not a great way to do that. Yeah, no, it's fine. I norm I mean, for any kind of academic podcasting, it's probably not the best tack anyway. Um, but I figured I would ask just because it, in terms of like the types of podcasts I listen to some, I don't I'm not like a true crime person, but I know like a, a ton of true crime shows do a lot of live things. But yeah, I guess it, it works for some shows. It wouldn't work for others. That's totally fine. But I'm happy to hear that you have done some live events and, and other things. Again, I don't know really the size of your audience, but I'm sure there's people out there who are like, I would really like to see him do something or ask him a question. And in terms of like audience engagement, if you're not doing the live thing, do you solicit questions? And then do you do a Q&A episode? Do you do a different type of outreach thing? Is that something you haven't done but would like to do eventually? I've done one Q&A episode when I got to episode 50 because that was my two years mark i am going to do another one when i wrap up the acaminid period uh because i wanted to do it for episode 100 but had a couple too many episodes and it didn't make sense to do a q a and then go through one of the biggest most famous events that people are absolutely going to have questions about so i'll probably do that sometime this coming year and i'm always extremely happy to take one-off questions and engage with people on social media or over email. You know, I provide those links and that contact information for a reason. I really do want to hear from people, even if I'm not setting up some kind of formal event for it. Yeah. And I'm sure, and, and I know actually from having looked at your website, you do have a contact form. So for any curious listeners who may be newly introduced to your show, as well as longtime listeners, they have an avenue where they could send in a, a contact form and question or, or whatever. And I'm sure you get a lot of those. I don't know if you're inundated, but I'm sure you get, you know, curious people wanting to reach out because while I, I think it's quite impressive that while you're not in academia proper anymore, you're still regarded as a bit of an authority on the subject. Must be kind of nice. It It comes with, I think, the territory of being one of very few people doing public history on a topic, especially being as focused on that one rather niche topic as I am, you know, it's not like people who will cover something about Persian history through a general, you know, isn't this neat world history oriented podcast or ancient history world podcast because I am focused and specialized and there's just not a lot of other people who, with a big online presence who are, I am able to fill that role for a lot of people. And I think like that has is part of what has pushed me to remain engaged academically since leaving academia proper is because I know people are coming to me as an authority on this, whether or not I have the credentials. So I should at least be able to give them a correct answer because there's lots of people out there who won't. Well, we appreciate people who strive to spread accurate information. And and that's and and I think the wonderful thing about what you're doing and what a lot of people in public scholarship are doing is providing to the best of their ability good accurate information that you don't have to feel like, "Oh no, I'm I'm limited. I can't find this because either I don't know where to look online or I don't have access to academics." And so that that's one of the wonderful things about public scholarship that you can turn to someone like yourself and say, "Hey, I know at least I can trust you to give me 
pretty good information here. Like, what do you have for me? And in terms of this kind of strange place that academic style podcasters inhibit, where you're in, but you're out, you kind of have one foot in, in each world, you know, it is a unique place to be. And I guess, what advice would you have for someone who said who would like to sort of enter this space? You know, is it easier now than before? Is it harder because more people are trying to do it? I mean, I know you came in at a very unique time. You came in with the Hellenistic Age podcast. And so even, you know, that was a couple years before I even started in 2020. And when I started, the podcasting space had changed and there were a lot more things focused on ancient history. So to anyone who might want to do it now, how has it changed? Right. So even when I was starting, you know, people were already making fun of podcasting as oversaturated. And, you know, podcasting was oversaturated in 2019. God only knows what it is now. But what I would say is there's absolutely no barrier to entry. Like I said before, you can't go into it expecting to be a commercial success because there are, I think, like 12 podcasters whose podcasts are and that's the only thing they do. But that's not a reason not to do it. If it's a subject that's really engaging to you and you're willing to put in the effort and the engagement with scholarship to learn about something and share that with others, you absolutely can do that. Uh, especially the more niche it is, the less likely you are to overlap and the more likely there is to be somebody else out there who has also said, oh, I really wish I could learn about that more easily. And if you happen to be somebody with access to the right books and papers and stuff to get that information to those other people who are interested in in it, you will find an audience somewhere out there. You know, one of my good friends runs the History of Suckart Fellow Georgia. There is an extremely limited window of people with a deep fascination with the modern country of Georgia. But it is such a unique topic to look at that he has found a lot of success with that. Now, the flip side to that is if you are interested in something like Greece or Rome or, you know, even Persia, now there's three or four podcasts that cover it now, uh, which has been very fun to see as it evolves. You will have more competition for ears. And so if, you know, having a big listener base is part of why you want to do it, it's maybe not as great a, a plan, but there's always new perspectives and takes to have on any of these topics, so long as you're willing to learn the information you want to put out there. We don't really need more summary live readings of ancient sources. There's plenty of that. But if you have a perspective and you're willing to learn different perspectives on the information, there's a lot of room for more you know, interpretation and discussion in this space, even on topics that have already been done. That's a great perspective. And kind of bouncing off of that, you did enter with a very niche topic and you were able to grow a listener base. And that's super impressive and awesome. Now you have said that there are more, but you, you're going to stop as we've heard roughly into the mid ninth century, maybe. So is there a show actually that is going that is currently doing a good job of kind of expanding and doing something quite different from you or is 
they're not someone who's kind of stepped into this space quite yet. And what would you like to see done beyond your work? There was an attempt to do a history of modern Iran, starting with the Qajars, I think, but they trailed off pretty quickly. There is a more comedy-oriented podcast called So You Think You Can Rule Persia that you know has only committed to doing through around the same time period as me but i know the hosts and they you know they're enjoying enough success that they intend to i think carry on beyond that there's not really anybody out there right now filling the period beyond where i intend to stop in the same style that i do and i am not entirely opposed to if people really want me to doing more summary format and covering that in a shorter amount of time but i'm not equipped to engage with it on the same level really i would love to see somebody do it you know starting with either the beginning of the caliphates or you know maybe around the the buyid dynasty or somewhere in that time frame where iran really started to become independent again in the middle ages or even you know that's a difficult time period to cover, and there are other podcasts that have kind of come in and out of that sphere in different ways. But there's nothing really focused on Iran, starting with like the Safavids, where things become much more of a recognizable modern nation state. And that is a kind of a convenient starting place if somebody wanted to take that up as a, a topic. You know, there are good starting points in there that I'm just not familiar with the information enough to really commit to it myself. That's fair. And I mean, I don't know who would take it on. There are academics out there, I suppose. But again, they're kind of busy doing the whole academia thing. And I don't know, I guess for you, the motivation was always clear. This was a passion and interest. So we can't just say, you know, you are layperson, general public who just happens to have this wild passion. Like you're your motivation clearly comes from a very centered position. But would you like to see more quote unquote lay people take on endeavors such as these? You know, what's funny is I would actually say I'd love to see more academics take on endeavors like this. Most of this media ecosystem of these serialized history narratives are lay people. And many of them do a very good job. And many more of us learn to do a very good job through the process and you know getting online and interacting with public academics in an engaging and helpful way and learning where to get more resources and as you learn that you engage with more of the literature but it would be excellent to see more academics or you know more people kind of in the same category as me of Partial academics, I went far enough into academia to get a grounding in how the field works professionally, but I've never really been part of it as my career. Or people who have left academia uh, for financial reasons or for personal reasons who still have those interests. This is a really easy way to engage with them in a public space. And you don't have to be promotion heavy and, you know, social media heavy the way I am. I just enjoy that aspect of it. Yeah, I think I agree completely. It is an avenue that is open, that is not as well traveled for people 
in academia. And I think it would help a lot to dispel these ideas of ivory tower. The more academics you can kind of get to do something fun like podcasting, you know, make them conversational, make them talk to the public on a level that they would sort of best understand because it is quite easy to get caught up in when you're publishing only for a select few type of people. That doesn't really give you an idea of how to talk to people if you're not out there talking consistently to people through public lectures. It, it is a very different world. So I think you're right. Getting into podcasting would be a really great thing. Now, quickly, I did want to ask you, as someone who, you know, got far in academia, but who is not in academia proper, but as someone who does a very good both for academics and non-academics, good, well-researched podcast. How does everything that you've done covering ancient Persia affected your ability to consume media, bad media, like the 300 movie? Oh, I mean, I have always, like, even at the age of 10, when I was probably first seeing 300 and first really engaging with ancient history, well, clearly, that's not how it actually worked. I can still engage with it. For my financial supporters on Patreon have actually been doing a run of bonus episodes talking about various depictions of the Achaemenids in fiction, starting with Xenophon's Cyropedia and working my way forward. I'm happy to engage with it, but I will also scream and rant about how terrible some aspects of it are or you know i try not to get petty with it for historical fiction i you know to make a full-length episode i will occasionally have to be pedantic if i'm doing something like that but historical fiction is allowed to change things that's what makes it fiction but just don't change things into lobster men or ninjas zombies i the 300 movies are very strange regardless of how bad they are in any other way they're just odd but there's not a ton of media out there about Persia. There's you know, there's a fair number of historical fiction books that I have not read all of. Some of them are very good. Some of them take very specific stances that I don't agree with historically, but make for fine literature. And some are somewhat outdated, and I can't fault them for, you know, being great historical fiction in the context of the research that was available 40, 50 years ago. There's just not a ton of recent media other than the 300 movies. I think the closest thing to a Persian-inspired adaptation or you know popular media I've heard about in the last few years is Lin-Manuel Miranda recently announced that he wants to do a stage adaptation of The Warriors, which is a movie from the 70s based on Xenophon's Anabasis. So it's, you know, at that point, also, you're a several layers of adaptation deep before you get to this play that's coming up. And also, I just think, well, if it's a musical based on a movie about street gangs in New York, that's just West Side Story. I don't see how that's going to be very good. But there's not a lot of new media about ancient Persia, which is kind of disappointing. I have plenty of ideas that I'd love to pitch to Hollywood just as soon as uh, that won't get me blacklisted for anything. Oh, the struggle is real. I know. I'm always looking for better like anything that does the Persians and does them relatively well. And yes, unfortunately it is very slim pickings and I, and I hope that people will do more with them going forward, but we shall see. I'm not really sure if that's going to materialize anytime soon. We just need more public history on them to get them into the, the consciousness and get the idea out there of some of these 
some of these stories that aren't the wars with Greece, you know, because whether they're good or bad movies, 300 still kind of has those covered in the popular consciousness. But there's so many other weird and interesting things of coups and power struggles and imposter kings and imposters of imposter kings. There's there's material out there to be made if somebody is willing to take the risk and do some history based on something other than Greece and Rome, really. I agree. I mean, we do only really seem to get the Persians in context, in the context of Persian Wars or something with Greece. So yeah, it would be really fun. I mean, there's definitely like a Game of Thronesian series somewhere in there. I mean, there's so much of Persian history. There's four or five of them, depending on which generation you pick. You could do an anthology. See? Okay, let's hope <laughs> someone does that soon-ish. Interested in learning more about the wonders of ancient Persia? Visit the UCLA Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran. The Gazetteer digitally preserves famous locations, world heritage sites, and lesser-known areas from all time periods of ancient Iranian history. You can explore using the interactive map, or visit the encyclopedic catalog for updates to the ever-growing list of archaeological sites. Visit www.irangazetteer.ucla.edu and learn more about what the Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran has to offer. Now, there are two final questions that we would like to leave our audience, but also yourself with. And so the first of these, what, in your opinion, is the greatest legacy left to us from ancient Persia? Hmm. From ancient Persia. So I, I always have to, in my head, dissect this in terms of, do they mean the Achaemenids or do they mean like all of ancient Persia? Because the Achaemenids, it's like a lot harder to pick out because a lot of their legacy kind of gets subsumed in the general Hellenistic monstrosity that comes after. But for ancient Persia in general, I, I really do think that in many ways it is the existence of an Iranian identity today that is really something that you start to see developing as a coherent, cohesive regional identity and you know ethno-cultural identity during the final couple of centuries of antiquity. You know, it's not fully formed by any stretch at that point, but you know the, the Persian language is expanding rapidly at the time, and so much so that by the ninth century, you have Arabic sources referring to Persian as Iranian and other Iranian languages by various other terminology. So you have, I th think, the existence of Iran as a cohesive unit is really one of the primary legacies and lasting legacies from antiquity. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the, the second question I have for you is, what do you think would be the best legacy that we can leave for future students and historians and just enthusiasts of Iranian studies? I mean, obviously I am biased because this is what I do, but... I would really love to see people work towards a legacy of public engagement with this information and with this history. There is so much of it that is so interesting and there's so much more of it than people realize. And, you know, a lot of people's only engagement with a lot of subjects is through the lens of them interacting with Greece and Rome and 
academics who from an academic perspective say that there's not very much literature or not very many sources out there which leads lay people to interpret that as oh well there's nothing for you know we don't know anything about them because there's nothing out there and what we mean is that there's you know only a couple dozen major literary works and a few thousand tablets of very boring tax information but that's so much information for people with the knowledge and training to extract and present something interesting to the public. The public just has to know it's there for them. And I think we could see a lot more media and a lot more public understanding and interest and engagement with our work if we are willing to get it to them. I wholeheartedly agree because, well, as a fellow podcaster for Ancient Studies, Yes, most of my work really is steeped in that as well. So I can really only agree with that. And I will say, you know, maybe maybe it's just that UCLA doesn't want the competition right now. But if you want to not be the only noteworthy Iranian studies program on this continent, you need to get the information out there for students to express interest in and kind of rebuild that. Because it's embarrassing that there's one or two programs focused on ancient Iran in the Western Hemisphere. It, you know, especially when I think Germany has seven. Like, Yeah, we do need to get better. I mean, one of the wonderful things about being here at UCLA is, you know, opportunity. And one of the things I love about our new podcast here, Legacies of Ancient Persia, is that we get to start the work. And I'm hoping that someone will pick up the ball and keep it going kind of like I don't know rugby or something you just someone picks it up someone starts it but then you you got to pass it off you got to hand it off and and hope someone keeps going and you have to build the interest in the game for someone to be there to pass it off to and I think that's really what I would like to see from Iranian studies in general in terms of a legacy from what we're doing right now is get it out to the public you know yeah workshops for academics are great building a more cohesive field is great but once you've done that you've got to tell other people about it or it's going to stay sequestered as something that the average person either doesn't know about or misunderstands in an almost harmful degree and i'm seeing a lot more of that recently so i'd really love to see more people trying to correct some of those things yeah and not only get it out but get it out in a way that more people outside the field would want to engage because i think you know, for academia at large, though, it's easy to produce a lot of content. But if all that content is very academic in nature, even if you tell people it's there, they're not going to want to read it or look at it. So I definitely think an, an emphasis on figuring out how to talk to lay people, as, as, as we're saying. Absolutely. And I will tell the academics in the audience this, written publications for a general audience often pay which is something you don't get from a journal <laughs> there there's out folks the big secret so <laughs> you know hopefully yeah no i think i think it's good we're, we're seeing a lot of movement and we need to see more but this is a good start and obviously your show has been kind of a staple since it's been around in 2019 and i hope that your success continues and we love to see other podcasts focusing on Persia thrive and it sets a, a good boundary for a litmus test for where things could go and I hope we can expand it and so you know it's it's very exciting 
to be in the Persia podcasting space. And, and I can say we're, we're so happy to have joined that space and, and we look forward to continuing to, to grow. So thank you so much for, for joining me on the show today. And, you know, I, I can't wait to see all the great things that you come out with. And finally, where can people find you, your socials, your show? We'll, we'll link it all in the show notes. Right. So you will find my show, just search anywhere where there are podcasts or just a search engine for History of Persia podcast. You know, I, I got in early, so I got to pick the very obvious name. You can find me on social media as History of Persia podcast on Facebook and Instagram and things owned by that company and at History of Persia everywhere else. Great. And my website is historyofpersiapodcast.com with the selected bibliography and the contact page uh, and audio players if you just want to listen to it there. Wonderful. Well, we will link all that in the show notes and hopefully people will go and check out your show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Legacies of Ancient Persia is a port of podcast production, hosted and edited by Lexi Henning, with select episodes co-hosted by Marissa Stevens. Cover art provided by Hadley Leesman and original music by Brent Arhart. Established in 2017 as the premier research center for the study of ancient Iran, the mission of the Portavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is to engage in transformative research on all aspects of Iranian antiquity, including its reception in the medieval and modern periods, by expanding on the traditional domains of old Iranian studies and promoting cross-cultural and interdisciplinary scholarship. Thanks for listening to our show. It's available to stream on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Portavood Institute and at Portavood UCLA. Or visit our website, portavood.ucla.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review us. For podcast inquiries or questions about the Portavood Institute, please email us at portavoodpodcastproduction at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue our deep dive into the legacies of ancient Persia.